0: Backintime.biz at blog talk radio. Um, uh, welcome this afternoon. This is 417 2006, and I am coming to you live from Crofton, Kentucky. My name is Stacey Webb. I am a Redbone descendant, but I also manage Backintime.biz publishing company. And where we publish books on the u s color line, the history of the u s color line I'd like to welcome you quickly again um to uh, Scott uh Sewell, who has published a number of books here with back in time um and and he's working hard to get new books out every day. We're so excited he's like our library recently and um he's he's got a a really well timed book um Cherokee Paradox, which deals with um some of the issues that, that we're facing tribally and uh, personally through DNA testing and personal identity. And I'm gonna go ahead and open the mic. Welcome Scott. How are you doing today?
1: Casey, how are you? Wonderful. Can you hear me can you
0: hear me okay? I hear you wonderfully. Thank you. And thank you again for hosting Myself and my father last week in the Redbone Heritage Foundation and back in time at your beautiful North Florida Indian Conference, your 20th annual. Is it annual, Scott? Yes, yes ma'am. It's annual. We had such a great time. Wow, what a, a beautiful crowd you had and so welcoming and uh, respectful and my dad just was so honored to be there with you guys and to celebrate, um, your conference. Um, you have a lot of updates, um, during which we, we spoke, you know, you spoke at length there, um, at the beginning and, and we, I thoroughly enjoyed, but go give us just a little bit of, of what you're, telling your people and and what the message is for them and just talk about the north florida indians for a few minutes for me
1: okay i started the conference 20 years ago as a kind of as a vehicle because i didn't see a venue where um the the indian community and community of of indian descendants as well in this area of North Florida had a a place where they would kind of rub elbows and exchange ideas and talk about stuff and uh that kind of thing. So I, I wanted to facilitate that. That being the the, the um the, the the case. I went and uh, looked around for a venue, found a really nice civic center that we were able to, to use and began reaching out to community leaders in different Tribal groups, ceremonial ground groups, um, academics, uh, people like that, and over the years it's kind of evolved along with the the change in landscape of the of the social and political uh, world here as far as um, when I started it twenty years ago uh, the the uh, situation in the pen of Florida was to where there was no uh, federally recognized uh, tribe located here The Seminola and Miccosukee tribes are located In South Florida, Escambia County Florida, where, where Pensacola Is, is uh porch Band of Creek territory and that The Panhandle in between has no You know, uh, fairly recognized Tribes and Florida doesn't have state Recognition unlike a lot of the other Southern states, so um, I kind Of put on the conference to 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 update people that were attending on the research that myself and my cousin Pony Hill were doing. Um, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with the, the Panhandle of Florida and the, the populations here and stuff, but mainly it's you have many thousands of Creek descendants, people who, ha- who have one or more Creek Indian ancestors that avoided the removal and were allowed to stay you know, here under the the Treaty of Fort Jackson, and and we're given allotments and stuff, and then you have a large population of Indians from North Carolina that were uh, Catawba and Lumbee and different groups that that migrated in, and uh, over time, some of those families all intermarried into a a community here, and that's uh, that's the two main groups you find here is people of Creek ancestry and and people of Carolina Indian ancestry, we call it, but it's mainly Lumbee and Catawba and Chirau like that. And that's uh, the modern community of, of descendants. It's kind of lopsided in that the, the, um, the Carolina Indian descendants, because during the segregation era were, were targeted and in the crosshairs a lot of times due to, The Jim Crow segregation laws were targeted as colored, mulatto, Negro stuff like this, uh, as far as uh, racial status pigeonholing by the authorities and uh, neighbors and such like that. And uh, that that history is not very well known. If you rode around the Panhandle, you'd see you know uh, half a dozen Creek Indian powwows. You'd hear about a half a dozen Creek Indian descendant organizations. But when you start cracking the the uh, archive and looking for documentation like Bureau of Indian Affairs does during the process of groups asking to be fairly recognized, you have a tough time outside of the porch band of finding Creek Indians on the census or Creek Indians in any court cases or pretty much very, very much at all archival records of this large Creek Indian uh, identity that you see here. So as we began deconstructing it through our research, we found many times it was that uh, these these Carolina Indian migrants uh, into the area were the only people identified as Indian uh, on any kind of documents like that—census, court records, tax records, military enlistments—all the kind of primary documents we use researching a community's social and legal history, and uh, that's that's uh, the situation as it was 20 years ago is there wasn't no venue to kind of dis- disperse the, the results of our research. So uh, we began to do that and it had a kind of a, a social side too in that people could talk about the, the, the events going on or their hopes of uh, things they were trying to accomplish. And um, that was the kind of the, the, the genesis of the conference. And it's 20 years now and uh, things have, continued to happen it seems every every but seeing it through the context of a yearly gathering it it, it in a way puts it into a kind of a more of a narrower lens as you can say you know this is one way to track what's happened over the last couple of decades for for people of Indian ancestry here in Florida's panhandle you know
0: correct yes and and it's it's a way to preserve what we have and and that is most important to um, people like you and I who advocate for our communities as we need to document and preserve as, as well as possible. and I'm so proud of you guys for continuing um, to keep up your ceremonial grounds and um, your conferences and including uh, the red bones and we we thoroughly enjoyed it and and we wish you guys all the luck and anything that we can do to help. Uh, further your community, we will certainly do that. And um, I'm I'm going to take just a minute and and talk about the Redbone Chronicles because I know that you wrote a wonderful article. And um, in the new in that what we did is the Redbone Heritage Foundation for a number of years self published a journal, or a chronicle. And what I did is I took those and and condensed those into uh, one, and then we added some new articles. And you wrote a a wonderful article, The Buckskin Curtain of Indian Country. And tell us a little bit about your article, and um, are you going to write another one for the next one? or? Yeah, I would.
1: Uh, I'd be glad to. The the buckskin curtain of Indian country kind of just came out of some experiences of observing Indian country in eastern Oklahoma, where I lived the last, you know, decade and a half, pretty much uh, in Cherokee Nation, observing the the, the playing out there, kind of like we were talking earlier about in, in Florida, but in eastern Oklahoma and politics as things came and went, and you see the direction of federal Indian policy of, of social trends on populations and identities, and Cherokee Nation has always been a very interesting one to, to me because it's it's one of the most unique tribes and one of the largest tribes in the United States. And so as I watched kind of uh, federal policy and, and cultural trends and stuff happen through the lens of the lives of my friends and uh people there that I knew, my my relatives and stuff, uh I was like, you know, this is like you know, the old Iron Curtain, the communist iron curtain and people don't know what goes on behind the the Iron Curtain kind of thing. I thought, you know, there's a real True. there's a real kind of uh lack of clarity a lot of times or lack of, of insight in the general population of what goes on in Indian country. And what Indian country is and different stuff. And in a place like Oklahoma, which is extremely diverse, has 37 federally recognized tribes, has countless uh, groups that have been merged into federally recognized tribes, yet maintain their own cultural identities like the Uchis. That's one thing that happened was the Yuchi tribe of Oklahoma petitioned for federal recognition and were denied. Uh, by the Bureau by the of Interfairs I, I watched stuff like that unfold around me I watched huge developments in economic development By Cherokee Nation and, and other tribes And uh, Just had several kind of insights that uh, I thought You know, be a, a little thing to write about that, that might be of interest to other people Because it's kind of, kind of complex And if you live in Indian Country Or you travel in Indian Country Indian Country is, is the land It is uh, communities that are on Or associated with Indian Trust lands so it may be A clear cut reservation like a place like um, The Ports Band Reservation Here in in, uh, South Alabama North Florida or it may be Like parts of Oklahoma where there's no clear cut Reservation but it's an Indian jurisdictional Area places that federal Law as applied to Indian people and, And tribes affects Life where you have you know Law enforcement you have federal issues of of, uh, land trust, custody, and different stuff like that. That's Indian country. And it's another way of referring to just Indian communities in a way, you know. Right.
0: And they have their own special needs as far as their communities go. Like you said, um, land uh, problems and things like that. Um, So they have a a whole plate full of different issues that we're just not accustomed to in a regular society that is not based around uh, Native American reserve land and and that. Um, And tell us also, you've written this well-timed Uh, book, Cherokee Paradox, and I really love this one because it addresses so many critical issues among our people, among the Native American federally recognized tribes, and DNA, and this has just been an astounding search and research, um, you know, a science that we're applying just now uh, to our people and to our groups and um, tell us all about Cherokee Paradox and uh, you know how you feel about some of the recent issues with personal identity as far as DNA goes. Uh, I know we've had, I have experienced some problems personally uh, with DNA testing and you know, what we might believe today is the truth and tomorrow find something different. And, you know, just unexpected ancestry, as your title says, totally unexpected uh, heritage that was never considered pre- previously. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah
0: it's, they, it's a big deal. You know, it's it's it, a big it deal. Is. There's it is. There's thousands and thousands of people who are doing DNA and genetic testing. And, uh, you know, so tell us all about your new book because it's interesting. Well, I, I know, uh, our listeners
1: probably are some, you know, like anybody, we all have a, a spectrum kind of of what we know about certain subjects and what's going on. And I, I found a kind of a perfect storm of a a vastly growing interest in the American, you know, mind and 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 life for knowledge of roots and and ancestry and places you come from and it's kind of like it piggybacked on the last 20 or 30 years of the explosion of interest in genealogy and the cutting edge of science with genetics where uh something that uh, Uh, everybody would be interested in something that very few people know about came together in this current direct-to-consumer genetic testing and the the many controversies and issues that that have come out of that and if you watch any tv show lately or something you'll see a an ancestry.com commercial on just about any show and uh, on one they have a guy on there as i open in the book you know uh, where a guy's on there and he's like yeah my family said that they were german and I, you know, I was in a German dance group, cultural dance group, and we, it was all cool. And then I took my DNA test, and I'm not any German. I'm Scottish, and so I had to trade in my leader for a kilt. Or a kilt, the guy says on there, and I was like, that commercial came out, you know, after I had written, and I was like, it is really so big. It's it's all over the place. So now they have these direct-to-consumer DNA tests for like a hundred bucks, and people take them, and it gives them kind of some insight into the apportionment of, of ancestry from different continental origins and different regions and stuff and and you know well, it doesn't
0: it's early days.
1: It's early days, you know.
0: Yeah, you're speaking of autosomal testing, which right, would right. be like a comparison to other populations in the world of ethnic right. origin. So right. I just wanna buy that we're talking about autosomal because uh, I don't quite know if everybody understands that, you know, haplogroup, or male or female does not right. present uh, an ethnic identity for you. It just will explain where your furthest, most recent ancestor migrated from. And so right. uh, right. when uh, we talk about the we talk about that they take the alleles And they look at those alleles on a basis of who does this allele, what population of this world do you match more closely on this allele, which would be your ethnic. Um, But then there is the in-depth problem also for if, say, you come back with African, say, sub-Saharan Africans on your DNA report, well, then you must get down to a finite point of where did that so-called sub-Saharan African come from. It could be North Africa, which is what we are finding with most of our our people, and I believe yours as well. So um, tell us about Cherokee, you know, their paradox as far as what their test results are proving out. Um, You know, this is a Great interest to um, in so many of us because, as you say, the Cherokee Nation is so large and you have a lot, a lot of people who claim Cherokee heritage, although it may not be official on a piece of paper somewhere. Um, you sure, know, sure. who are the school group coming back? I mean, you know, what is their result, if you know? Well, the
1: the, the name Cherokee Paradox. I'm not sure who the first person or the first time it started being used, but I know that Professor Brian Sykes from Britain had a book called DNA USA that came out uh, in the last couple years, last few years, and he's he's pretty well known for several other books that he – has written in the past that have to do with um uh the seven daughters of Eve is one, uh Adam's curse, yeah. uh there's several different books he's written relating to DNA and written for the layman, very informative, pre- pretty good to to read. And if people haven't read it, they can give you some some decent background on different aspects of it. Um but the 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 term Cherokee paradox emerged and he used it in his book uh as a way to describe a phenomenon where people think, oh, well, I am this, you know, and they have an ethnic identity they identify with, and and then they the DNA comes back and they may have little or even no genetic tie to that community of identification, we'll call it. And this became most surprisingly, you know, to some people, when of the 320,000 enrolled members of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, you know, Thousands of people began saying, "I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation, and I took this DNA test, and it says I have no Indian ancestry. How could that be possible?" And uh, I didn't. I had, this happened to several friends, and I said, "There's no, there's no vehicle. It's kind of a taboo subject uh, back to the, the buckskin cut uh, curtain, so to speak. That it's a taboo subject in Indian country between people with CDIB certificate of degree of Indian blood." Cards of, you know, how what, how much Indian are you according to your card and stuff, it's not really good manners to be going around asking everybody, you know, what's your blood quantum, for two reasons. One, it's just rude. But number two, there's no uh, uh, accuracy to a lot of that. So relying on it too much is, is, you know, not very sensible. Well, as these thousands of people got these results, they began asking questions and reaching out to, to academia and, and reaching out to different authorities saying, you know, could you help explain this? And basically it's people don't really understand two things, the the history of the Cherokee Nation or genetics. And the vast majority of enrolled members of Cherokee Nation are people who are the descendants of a full-blood Cherokee Indian person on a roll in a century past, two centuries past, you know, long ago. And they don't really have a – Mm, big tie to the current existing small pockets of very Cherokee-identified communities like Kenwood, Oklahoma, or areas around Tahlequah, or areas around Cherokee, North Carolina, you know, these kind of places that have significant, you know, pockets of, of people of Cherokee ancestry and a high degree of Cherokee ancestry. So, you know, outside of those communities, you have these hundreds of thousands of people that are members of Cherokee Nation but are in almost no way besides that tied to the Cherokee language, identity, you know, cultural patterns and stuff. But they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are a member. And so a lot of times the political identity of the Native American and the ethnic and cultural and such get get kind of uh, mixed up. People don't understand that, that the vast majority of people in this country, and this may be a little bit of a of a surprise or even a controversial statement to some people, but the vast majority of people in this country that have American Indian ancestry are not members of a fairly recognized tribe. they're called Mexican mm. they're called hispanic they're called a lot of different mm. ethnic names yet they have a mm. lot of Native American ancestry because of the history of the regions where their ancestors lived then you you jump sure. over to a tribe like Cherokee Nation where for centuries it had a extremely high degree of outmarriage to other people, not within the the social group. And it's no real surprise that you have this, you know, large amount of people of of very little, uh, if any, showing up, you know, as far as the DNA goes, you know.
0: Sure. And and as far as uh, identity goes, regardless of your test results, you are who you are. Um, I feel like that, you know, it causes some grief uh, among some. I, I must tell you that, that one of our friends who is Comanche, always full blooded Comanche, and there was nothing else there, and he recently tested DNA tested, and he found that he did have a, a significant uh, amount of North European, and, and he literally went to his sickbed for a year. And uh, it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change his... I mean, I hope that it would not change his tribal identity, but I believe that it can cause some significant personal grief
1: as far as
0: you believe that you're something and find
1: out you're not. I've witnessed it, and that's part of what drove me to write The Cherokee Paradox was I saw the real effect it had on people's lives who any anybody that's around Indian country and Native communities today and that outside of the large reservations, it, it, especially in a place like Oklahoma or the American South, you have thousands, and probably more like a million people who identify strongly in a in a cultural or ethnic sense with the American Indian people. And yet, you know, they may or may not be members of an Indian tribe, they may or may not you know, know a lot about a tribal language or stuff, but they strongly identify with this. And it's a, a a treasured and cherished part of the way they see themselves. And that's that's always gone on and it's going on now. But there's a new reality that's that's come in and that is that science is catching up with uh cultures where you have tribal groups that have a large diverse ancestry set. People like the Seminoles of Florida or or uh the Catawba tribe of South Carolina, or Cherokee Nation, and so you, you you find that the the realities are are slightly offset from the expectations people have that they say you know I'm this or I'm that, and why is my DNA test saying I'm different? And it really comes from ignorance of how we have evolved as communities of people, and that you know the 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 reality on the stage now or, or the, the the presence of science to give insights to that initially I I'm, I feel is creating a an opportunity and it's painful at first but I'm I'm kind of actively counseling over a dozen people right now who have taken their DNA tests their tribal members of different tribes and they're like I can't believe this I'm all these different things and usually primarily in a big way Northern European and that you know it's that 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 disconnect that I spoke of earlier, that most of the people in this country with American Indian ancestry are not members of Indian tribes, and many of the members of Indian tribes, especially in Oklahoma or the South, have a high degree of European ancestry, those realities are just now breaking onto the scene. And I just, a couple of days ago, had it. one of the families, one of our primary families in our community, the Jacobs family, a young uh, uh, young young boy that was adopted by the Jacobs family. They had his DNA test done. Uh, wow, a DNA test come out that he was seventy five percent Native American. And when they, you know, went to the, the authorities and stuff like that, he was adopted from a Mexican family. So they're like, wow, we, we knew he we knew he was Mexican, but we didn't know he was Indian. This is the uh-huh. the, the ignorance of history that puts us in the the uh, crosshairs of having your feelings hurt when you get your DNA test back. If, if you don't understand the history of this continent and the history of the of the admixture of people over the last 500 years here and ac- around the world for thousands of years, right. you know, that it's an ongoing mm-hmm. process and that, uh, you know, science is going to be a great tool in the hand of the Native American community to help in, in certain ways. And it's also going to be a pretty big challenge, you know, as it reveals things about, each person and community and, and nations and stuff that, that we didn't expect going into this exponential diversification of, of not just people's social identity and stuff that we all witness around us every day, but of the fact that society is changing radically in a single lifetime. And that's, that's the biggest thing, the biggest challenge that people face and that a book like The Cherokee Paradox Hopefully, can contribute to a little bit that understand this is this is not just you, and this is not just your situation. This is entire communities are being redefined, and 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 being called upon to re- redefine the, their own narrative about well, what does it mean to be a Lumbee? What does it mean to be a Melungeon a Redbone? What does it mean to be a Cherokee? What does it mean to be a white guy? What does it mean to be African American? You know, these are. I mean, here in the American South, where I, where I live at now, uh, DNA has revealed that many, many people, even up to twenty percent of the southern white population, has a recent African ancestry, and that that what it reveals is that all these treasure stories that many southern families have of oh my my uh, grandma that her her mama was a Cherokee princess, and you know lots of stories like that, and then they get a DNA test and it says, oh, it's African American." And that's the reality that these communities of people, whether they're black, white, whatever labels were put on them, share common histories, share common culture, and share common DNA. Especially here in the South, that that many black people have white ancestry to to a significant degree, and there are many white people that have a, a fair amount of African American ancestry as well. And when you take an average. You know, what would be called an Indian person from any of the tribal communities of the South, you're going to see an extremely diverse uh, uh, ancestry set of any average tribal member. But they're communities, just just like any other community. No community is really, you know, what we're saying when the average person gets their results and it's like 40% Irish, well, it's not clear cut, like where you cut an apple in half and then you cut a little bit off and say, there's the apple. What are talking about is centuries on end lifetimes, events in history that you read in a reading you know, you read in the history book that were occurring that created a very complex network of of interrelated people that over time have traveled across the globe and that may or may not be known to to you or even to your grandparents if you're from a community like ours to where oral history is important, you know, the shared common values and common uh themes that you find about, about our families and our history and our food and our all that stuff, um, these things are unknown, not just to people like us, you know, people of, of mixed ethnic origins, but to the average American. And that's why I think Cherokee Paradox is, is, is hopefully a, a contribution to the narrative that's going on.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And a timely one at that. Um, like yourself, I've, I've found myself really examining uh, of course, I've had my DNA done, and I've researched and studied over and poured over for the last fifteen years um, over three hundred red bone family descended, you know, DNA reports, and it shocks me all the time. Yeah, I, I just um, I can't express to you enough, and this leads me to a very good um, question and answer. That I promised to do here today. I, I I want to, if I can, on these shows sometimes share some of the most. And I, I would appreciate if you would give some thought quickly. What is your most asked question? Uh, you know, when you are out speaking and and communicating with your your group your community. Mine is, and has been recently. Why don't, uh, well, let me preface the question. The question usually starts with, you would be better received, meaning the red bone people, if we would just accept, uh, put a blank, Portuguese, Native American, African American, white, um, gypsy, whatever that person is studying at the time. Why don't we just embrace that, accept it, and own it? Okay, well, my answer, and I don't expect that this is the same with all all of us who represent these communities, but um, I can't accept, we cannot accept one without accepting all. I I am not, um, we, of course, the Red Bones are not, of course, Looking for tribal affiliation of any kind of recognized Native American tribe we would we would never put our hearts into something like that because we feel like we are such a mixed group that that we could it would be a uh, there's no way we could some of us could maybe do it and prove someone on a roll somewhere uh but the red bones are more interested in embracing all of these things not what they became after they came on these shores but what they were when they arrived because with our group we know very well that that our forefathers and mothers uh, were very diverse in their heritage when they arrived on these shores I will admittedly say that the last cultural attachment, uh, tribal attachment is Native American, absolutely, and and people feel attached to that, and they absolutely should go after it. But as far as a group, uh, the red bones, uh, we have to accept that a great majority of our DNA is gypsy, and what does that mean? Then we lead into, of course, things like the population Y which is in uh, an article that I wrote in the new Redbone Heritage Foundation. And it's a group of Amazonian Indians in the south tip of South America uh, who have tested, they have tested their DNA twice, and they do not match any uh, known groups of North, Central, or South American migration of, like, the Bering Strait or other theories of how they got here from Asia. We do not match an Asian population. They match an Australasian population, meaning from, like, Papua New Guinea, Australia, you know, the islands. And so in researching this, I mean, someone may run off because my highest, my highest, my my highest admixture and my closest DNA match was an aboriginal Australian. And at first we believed that this was because of the island hoppers from India, that that is the origin of the Australian, you know, the aboriginal Australian. But come to find out this group down in South America are are exactly matching the aboriginal Populations of Australia now And not an Asian Match Well and I got to digging around A little bit recently And I also found out that the, the Apache Who it said that The red bone gets their noxious Blood from This is a quote from One of the Anthropologists over the years That I think her name was Priest uh, said made a comment that we that the red bone got their noxious blood from the apache well um, if you study the apache uh it's it's almost perfectly clear that the Apache were brought from South America by the Spaniards, and they were brought up here and they were Christianized and uh, they helped settle the Spanish You know, mission system, and, uh, you know, which was just a network of thousands of missions and Padres, you know, um, people from Spain. But then we also have a high match to the Canary Islanders. And so that makes kind of a little bit of sense there because they were also brought here by the Spaniards to settle the mission system here in the United States or in the Gulf of Mexico, anyway. So this. We find out, and like you say, we find out new things every day. And so it's an evolving thing. And so we have to really accept on, on the ground, you know, get our feet on the ground and accept every bit of it. Uh, I, I don't know if that's so true about your group because you um, mostly have identified with your Native heritage. You know, you've kept your ceremonial yeah. ground, geez. That's you. That's unlike the red bone. The red bone really. I, I believe I'm going to name my next my chapter in the Goins book, the ones that got away, because I had wow. a woman in. I had a Native right. I had a Native American woman tell me when I was a little girl, that don't you understand, honey? You're the ones that got away. Yeah. And I never diary that remark until recently when we came across the you know the new DNA findings which will be in the Goins book on the the five grandfathers who matched the descendants of some of the known Osceola group, why uh, DNA perfect matches and the Perkins family is included and so it's just your it's your book Cherokee Paradox is perfectly timed because all of us are going to have to deal with these diverse issues. That's in right. our, that's right. Our, it's not yeah. just the red bones, It's everybody. No, I think and that so,
1: commercial that I started out talking about is is very representative of what's going on in the average mainstream American life. I have, you know, a dozen friends who have taken the DNA test recently. I have a couple that are waiting for the results right now. It's it's really hitting in a big way, and. Knowledge really is only as important or as effective or anything as the context of it. So they've done a really good job of packaging and marketing, you know, uh, insights into your ancestral journey, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's very interesting, but it's also extremely complex. and People don't understand that complexity. They want what so many of us, mainstream Americans such, have come to mm-hmm. enjoy in our modern American life is just tell me what to do. You know, tell me what it is. Yeah. you tell don't me, have to do it for yeah.
0: yourself. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. No, and, and if so DNA that's, testing, that's it is further research. I have it yeah. has led more questions than more answers, and yeah. so I, I really think you know that. It, well, it's like the Goins family, um, Jack Goins, and uh, a peer-reviewed article, which I I have said many times that I disagree with their overall blanket. You know, the Melungeons were African-American and European women. Uh, I just, it's way more complex than that. I do not see, and I, I was going to read this quickly. Um, Dwight Collins, who is a great descendant of of all of us mixed blood Indians and he lives out in Virginia I believe and, and he I should try to get him on. I, I've tried a few times but yeah I think he's a little shy. But he wrote a great little thing. It says um it was a this was a book that was written on the Melungeon, or it was an article that appeared uh, on the Melungeon, Genetic study. And it says while naming all 40 participants and using Omnipop and ENFSI, which both of that, Omnipop, ENFSI, is a free website that anyone can go to, and I will put up the link where you can take your DNA. Results your numbers and punch those into a huge database that will cut, kick back until you approximately, you know your autosomal, your admixture. Right. And so some, that's some people are calling here. them genetic calculators.
1: Those that that kind of uh, yeah. That that kind of a thing. Some people are just co- you know like a common name for it because it is exactly as you said complex. They just call it a genetic calculator. You know, it's like.
0: You put in information yeah. and you get out data. You know, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> right. Right. So Donald Panther Yates of uh, the Genetics Company DNA Consulting Consultants performed testing of 40 malignants, including Brent Kennedy and Wayne Winkler, who are both, um, you know, fairly large, you know, admitted uh, melungeons. Um, Yates' findings was published in a peer-reviewed Appalachian Journal, Volume 38, Number 1. Mr. Yates states the following after the testing was performed. Native American populations figured as strong matches for all but five participants. 88% seemed to exhibit Native American ancestry. For nine of the participants, Native ancestry had the highest possible rank in the number one position of world matches. Sub-Saharan African matches were present in 13 participants, absent in 27, and number one in four cases. European ancestry was represented by matches to Caucasian, Labeled populations within the, within the study sample, followed closely by Portuguese. In strict omnipop comparison, Portuguese matches were number one in eight profiles, or 20%. Mr. Yates went on to say, some Melungeons do not appear to have any indication of sub-Saharan African heritage. Overall, the amount of admixture for both ethnicities is about the same as in the Jones study, 5% sub-Saharan African and 5% Native American. In summary, Melungeons apparently have primarily northeastern Scottish ancestry along with south, southern European elements such as Portuguese and southern French. So does... You know, this blanket, we're all African American and European, that absolutely is not true. And uh, there is, uh, but I do want to preface that, I know I haven't said this enough because people, we have so many people who identify with a Melungeon line in their family or perhaps even uh you know, anyone who is a little bit dark skinned, uh, I believe you have a lot of people run into the the Mlungin trough. And I want to say this because it's true that the Red Bones are an older documented group than the Melungeons. The Red Bones were documented hundred and fifty years before the Melungian, before the first documentation of the Melungeons and you know, up there in in Tennessee. And so I want to caution everyone, we know that we're related to the Melungeon. So I think we kind of have this this appearance of being backwards that perhaps the Melungeon or perhaps the Melungeons are the progenitors of the Red Bones and Dominickers and Brass Angles and, you know, they just lump them all into the Melungeons and it's really not true. It's really absolutely not true. We were distinct groups, and I I believe that the red bones, if anything, are the progenitors and probably brass ankles are progenitors of us, but I don't know. Um, Right. You know, and so I think that people learn, they read something that says, oh, the Melungeons were dark-skinned, and so anybody who's dark-skinned, they just throw them into that group, and it's Right, it's just not so. It's, I mean, it's just not so. Um, We were some distinct families in certain geographical areas who were defined in certain names, but it all led to a Native American reputed ancestry in there. So, um, anybody who believes that, I I think,
1: I think this ties into a. Uh, an important point that we raise in Cherokee Paradox is that yes. when someone gets their their DNA back from the direct to consumer genetic testing and stuff, and I'm just going to kind of address it in a general way. They what they're seeing is really a snapshot of the last half dozen generations of their family, and any single ancestor beyond that threshold in the direct to consumer testing results is Statistically insignificant In other words Their grandma's Grandma's grandma Though that is the Truly their Grandma's Grandma's grandma Is Not very closely Related to them In a way As far as The genetic Contribution that A single You know Genetic ancestor Makes that far back It's not that that person Isn't someone's ancestor They are But these these large kind of groupings that people get when they uh, you know an average American will get it, it may something say something like you know fifty percent northeastern European ten percent African you know seven uh, percent um, uh, uh, southern European depending on the company they test with they use different terms for these groupings of, of populations and it varies across from, from different companies you know twenty three and me or ancestry or just there's there's so many now. And people don't understand, and that's really at the foundation of the Cherokee Paradox uh, as a a work, is that all you are is really a snapshot of your recent ancestry. It's not that millions of people throughout this new world we live in here don't have Indian ancestry. They do. But for those millions and millions of people, it's beyond – the threshold of five generations, six generations ago, and so it doesn't show up as a as a, a large chunk or even at all, depending on you know where it's at. And folks, if 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 folks understood that, just as a simple, basic thing, that what your DNA results are, generally speaking, is just a snapshot of the recent ancestry of your family, just the last half dozen generations, let's say, that would help people yeah. immensely in understanding. These these uh, surprising results And sometimes for some of the people I know Emotionally painful results That they really thought they were Way more Indian or they thought They were way less African American in the case of Some of them you know and no this is Just sure. a snapshot of you as an individual And in the surveys That have been done with different groups As communities where they Sampled across the community Yeah you see Factors that you know you see markers that say these are common ancestry groups that that come from, but amongst the different individuals in a community, you'll see a variation. Uh, sometimes very pronounced variation of some some families and family groups have a more you know significant portion of this group or that group of the overall groups that contributed to the to that that uh, that ancestry. And I, I think people coming in if they understood just a few points would have a much better context of what this means in their life and in their ancestors' lives uh when they take a DNA test. And and but it's early days as I said and that's the problem is it's just like probably when I don't know when T V showed up, you know, probably I can imagine my grandparents or great grandparents said, Look at that, that's pretty amazing. Uh 20, 30 years from now, everyone's going to have a DNA profile. We'll know so much more about how populations are related, how individual, you know, uh, people are connected to other people. Right now, we're actually still in the early days of this compared to what it will continue to to reveal to
0: us, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And world migration plays such a large role. And like you said, every testing company has a different – you know, baseline that they test against, and so you're never going to get the same results. I have seen people, hundreds of them, uh, they didn't like this or they test results so they go over and test at a different company and they didn't show this and they didn't show that or they showed something that they didn't show on the other report. You just must understand that their baselines are all different. They're testing different ways, you really have to understand what you're in. Like you said, you have a very large genetic pool that you pull yes. from, but it's, you know, it's absolutely uh, sometimes a shocker and, and causes a lot of personal grief. And as you said, it's... That's, that's right. So we don't here's,
1: here's my, anyone, here's what I'd like to, to caution people, that our listeners, would be that approach this journey of discovery of your genetic identity and stuff in a sense of play, in a sense of fun and in a sense of ma- imagination, and understand results not may change results will change not that the the, the data that the results are drawn from change, but our understanding of what that means has will, will change daily and yearly, and it's going to be an amazing journey in our lifetime, you know but don't don't take it so seriously. Really, that uh, it's, right. it's a pretty complex thing. And when you think you got a grip on it, you suddenly find out there's every answer raises two questions. So it's uh, approaching exactly. in a sense of discovery and fun as an individual person. Don't 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 get shook off the horse to say, well, I am not an Indian or I am a African American or I am a Gypsy or I am many different ethnicities that exist in a context of a. Of a multifaceted identity, any any ethnic group, any ancestor uh you know these these are very complex phenomena. One of my professors said long ago, beware of simple explanations for complex phenomena, and
0: boy, is it that true? that's absolutely the truth. Well, your book is perfectly timed, and I hope everyone will get a copy. It's Cherokee Paradox by Scott Seawall totally see well, and it can be bought at www.backintime.biz, or it can be bought directly from Amazon, and there is a Kindle version. We also have, um, of course, the new publishing for the Redbone Chronicles, which was absolutely a, a wonderful. I, I'm so proud of this one, and uh, we hope that you will get a copy. It is a beautiful book. It's it's softback, back and it's not color interior but it was absolutely it's coffee table worthy, I believe, with the Caitlin photo on the front. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it really is pretty. And we are trying to, we we did a really low price on the Kindle edition because it wasn't of course anything to have to produce except the file. And but the book is was a little more costly to to manufacturers, well, so I'd awesome. like
1: to say thank you for all of the people that are benefiting from the work that you're doing, stuff like that, making it possible mm-hmm. to have a voice from our own experience and from our own research and from our own okay. perspective out there rather than, you know, as much as we appreciate the academics and as much as we appreciate, you know, that side of mm-hmm. things when the people themselves are able to have a dialogue with each other, with the outside, you know, world about these communities, these ancestries and stuff, that's not very prevalent. And to be able to have something like Back in Time and Mera and stuff working on behalf of of many communities and stuff, you know, if if you weren't doing the work you're doing, it it wouldn't be happening. So a lot of people appreciate it. A lot of people are are benefiting from it, and, and you really should be proud of your work.
0: Yes, thank you. I, I certainly am. It's It's been a struggle, but it's like I said earlier, you know, about we have to accept everyone, and we know that your families are connected with our families, and there are several other groups out there that we know are biologically connected. Now we need to work on the genealogy and connect all these families. And our biggest challenge to date is is that the people understand that now you must make an effort in your own family to document these people's history and we'll give you an outlet to do so Um, because we want to hear from the descendants we want to hear from those people who uh, you know have experience with these communities uh, as in the Red Bones and the Dominickers and the North Florida Indians because Uh, even people in the communities identified those people hey those are native americans over there or those are whatever um we don't want to hear about the scholarly they all guessed and they did a good job i'm not saying they didn't but it's time to hear the descendant stories it's time to uh, move on from all of this speculative and get get organized with our dna results and Really, examine each family you know it has to be we have to look at each family individually so that we can get a better grasp of our roots and and this our biggest challenge is tribal identity because regardless of if we if we retain our communities as you have, your group is has worked hard to retain your tribal identities. Uh, the red people did not, and so that we take our genealogy and we look at it in an individual, normal kind of family view, when that is not appropriate for our families. Our family must be our families must be viewed as tribal because we're so interrelated
1: that you right. can't
0: do anything. To look at at it at as a as a tribal. People and so right. that's our biggest challenge, so right there. And I appreciate that, Scott. Um, and the same goes for you because uh, we are we're really, really. I know you and Pony are doing some work with the Cherokee. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yes,
0: we we are. Oh. Um, in fact,
1: he he was just there, or he's just getting back as we speak from from South Carolina a visit to the Cherokee tribe to the Catawba tribe our kinsmen up there that share common surnames. Um, uh, and what what we are trying to do is to, you know, all of these communities are in transition and um, the Sumter, Sumter tribe of Chirol that we're related to became a state-recognized tribe in South Carolina just uh, two years ago, I believe, around there. And I see this emergence of, of historically mixed-race identified communities that had their own schools, their own little pocket What at a certain point many years ago they used to call tri-racial isolates or these other names, but just folks that didn't fit into the black-white paradigm of the South, basically, and that have long histories all the way back to the colonial era as distinct groups who intermarried, who had their own cultural customs, their own geographies, a lot of things like that, these groups with desegregation – you had a huge sea change to where these groups for the first time were allowed to say, you know, or not allowed to say, but a phenomenon occurred where instead of being defined by outsiders and that force of constantly pushing you into your corner and your place in the southern social system that they had, uh, people had to either sink or swim together. Now, from my research, it is true in almost all these communities, from your own red bone people in the west all the way across to the to the Lumbees and, and folks in on the coast and and you know coastal regions of the Carolinas, they had a choice, and so a lot of times these communities, vast majorities of the of the people would try to find a new life somewhere. They they you know they had a rough social experience. Our our folks before us, but others said, "Let's pull together." And so in in certain groups, you had a very strong uh, streak of that to where they they pulled together. They reorganized. They redefined. What's it mean to be a Lumbee? What's it mean to be a Waccamaw? What's it mean to be a a, a Redbone? You know, folks began to say, does this mean I'm like this, or does it mean I'm like that? Am I like a – like, folks, here we have the Moat Choctaw that live down the road from here. You know, historically, for Mm -hmm. a century and a half, they were called Alabama Cajuns, not Native Mm Americans, so to speak, but definitely not. That's just another bunch of African Americans. They had a unique identity. Today, that's the Moab Band of Choctaw, a state-recognized tribe of Alabama. And that kind of leads me into our next work that I'm working on right now for us, which is is a a guide to the state-recognized tribes of Alabama, to where uh, the nine tribes in the state of Alabama that are recognized by the the, uh, Alabama Indian Affairs Commission, just like the book that Pony Hill did of the tribes of South Carolina called Strangers in Their Own Land, I'm doing a you know a, a companion book on Alabama that these are the state recognized yep. groups, and you know hopefully we'll have that out coming up pretty soon, and folks will be able to have. And it I, I try to write from that perspective of what we're talking about, not a book you would get from 20 years ago that says you know this is this, but one that takes into consideration the changing landscape daily almost of identity, genetics, politics, all of this. That if you come around here. Twenty, thirty years ago, looking for these state recognized tribes, they didn't exist because they became state recognized in the last few decades, most of them. Uh, you know, this they, sure. how fast this changed. And if you come twenty, thirty years from now, some of these state tribes have million dollar contracts in their economic development portfolios, and these are these are groups that are state recognized tribes. They have no access to federal funds and you know the stuff that a federally recognized tribe has. Yet they're doing great. Folks like the Moa. My Chase, other groups here in, in, in Alabama, you know, and, and I see the same thing happening with the Lumbee and happening with these other large groups that have kind of cleared the hurdle internally over the last few decades of this is what they used to say we were, this is who we say we are, and as a community have said, though we have a multiplicity of ancestral, you know, identities that contribute, we are Lumbee, we are Moa Choctaw, we are you know, put the name of the group in there because for every Moa and for every Lumbee, there's another group or two or three that did not survive the last fifty years, sixty years of of the of the era of desegregation and their internal fabric as a community. Everybody just said, you know what? Um, let's just clear out. Let's move to another state. Let's let's get that job and kind of just forget about Grandma and Grandpa's little country school they had where folks said. You know, look at that bunch of Buckheads or look at that bunch of Dominickers or, you know, the hundreds of names that they had for us back then, our unique local identity. This is the very fabric of American history we're talking about. This is as important as the Scots-Irish as a group. This is important as, you know, the Connecticut Yankee. These localized identities of the South and and East and uh, the Gulf Coast, these are the very fabric of American identity and, and of unique Historical experiences Very important I think
0: Yeah I I believe you're Absolutely right Um, There We This gets back To that personal Identity thing And what you were Talking about earlier With Cherokee Paradox If we can Establish a Cultural identity People who Descend from that Can identify With something That is Is theirs, and maybe they feel in their heart, Um, because you know I was raised in a white—I mean, I was raised white. I was raised in a white community, but I was always the girl on the block with the little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls of good German stock descent, you know, in East Texas. uh, Said I don't know what she is, you know, and so this has helped me personally to say. Uh, even if there's not an uh, an official tribal identity there, I can say, yeah, you know, the red bones—that is who we were, and that's who my family was. And uh, I don't—I I just am am so hopeful with with the Cherokee paradox book that that more people will come to an understanding that this is a lifelong study. It is something that we need to examine, and we need to just be open at all times for varying degrees of whatever happens. Um, someone asked me recently, did you think of a question that's often asked to you? Were you able to concentrate long enough to think of one of those? Yeah, the, the number one question I get asked
1: is, uh, and, and and I think these this phenomenon is very related to region, having lived in several parts of the United States like you have and stuff, and seeing different ways that local identity, local culture plays a role in how people form their sense of self-image, the number one question I get in my work here, and even to some degree in Oklahoma, was, um, you know, I'd be talking about the stuff we're talking about, and most average folks only have, they they can only build their insights from the material at hand. So they say, how do I get Enrolled? How do I get on the roll? How do I get? How does my son go to college? You know, how how can I? Uh, people associate this with American Indian uh, identity. Is they heard Indians mm-hmm. get a check? They heard you know somebody on TV yeah. said or you know these kind of
0: things. That mm-hmm.
1: if you're if you're in any way familiar with Indian country yourself, you you know
0: how these things work and their 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 multitudes. Maybe. You explicitly explain a lot of that in Bells of the creek nation uh you talk about allotments and and things like that, but go forward but i'm I't mean I just want to make sure everybody can find out more information on that aspect in that in your well, book. I, I
1: I challenge other researchers and I challenge those out there that are interested in this to address important emerging issues in the, as 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 these questions are, when you when you think about this and and wrestle with it all day long like I do, and a lot of a lot of people do, uh, you, you kind of see a a rhythm and a cycle here where the tribal identities of the past are going away. Even even in a a community like where I live here, I live near the Porch Creek Indian Reservation. I was there, you know, all all day yesterday, last night, stomp dances and stuff. It, it's great. But the rates of right. intermarriage that we saw in the grandparents and great grandparents and beyond our time going back, that what what there was of it, which sometimes and depend on the family and the community was significant or less so, that's that's a thing of the past in large degree. That's what I mean about exponential change. We we, we shouldn't be rearranging chairs on the Titanic, in other words, as as advocates, yeah. as educators, as community leaders what's really important is these vast changes to the to the, to the american society at large and folks like you like you're saying you know you grew up you didn't grow up in a tribal community you didn't grow up in, a, in usage of a native language or anything but what you did is as as distant as those journeys of ancestors were from these other parts of the world stuff it played out in your life they said who is that dark skinned girl and why is she so dark why why ain't she like her neighbor little you know blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, Susie and stuff. Yeah. Well, many people in our communities have that same experience. So even though they didn't go to their grandparents segregated school or they didn't have that experience, I I'm still seeing that play out now of of I have people approach me and say, How come I'm not enrolled if I'm supposed to be an Indian, look how dark I am and then I say, Well let's talk about your DNA. Let's talk about what it means to have all these different surnames you have and, yeah, you're going to find some of those surnames in an Indian tribe, and you're also going to find those same surnames in a distinct community that doesn't mm-hmm. rise a uh, level of being a state or federal Indian tribe but are just distinct communities in a region where it's very mm-hmm. prevalent. And it ain't just Indians. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the echoes of the past that for most people in this country at a certain point a couple generations ago, depending on your age, that's how it was. Every community of any race or any region, they were very intact communities. These type mm-hmm. identities are eroding in, in the modern mainstream. Right. They are eroding. And so you find the same person, I say, you're asking me questions about your grandparent. Let me ask you about your grandchildren. And what I find when I do that, they'll have one grandchild that's Part Hispanic, part white, part black, part so many different things And I'm using real gross general terms, but then I get out sure. down into it and say, "Oh this this kids have Mexican, what part of Mexico are they from?" And then as you find out, like I'm talking about a specific family right now because usually I try to go back to actual things i have experienced they'll be Indians from Mexico, not just Mexicans and they're speaking Spanish, and they're just you know they're specific. Regional identities, and that's true for every sure. single ancestor that a, an individual has. Every Scottish, you know, Scots Irish, mm-hmm. the largest contributors here in the South is, is Scots Irish, is the, the Lowland mm-hmm. Scots, and they're tribal people too at the time that they came to this country. When you go back here for years, every one of them surnames today that's just, you know, Joe McDonald, there's a clan McDonald, and there's a whole Ethnic history to that community That's true for every ancestor you have So understanding that In the context of being an American Is the real true challenge Not what happened to the Dominickers Over the last 150 years But how did all these people from all over the world Over the last 500 years Wind up in this little town That is now Oh that's where the Dominickers come from Yeah but the, The stories that led to all them folks That today is the ancestors of, quote, unquote, a Dominicker is an amazing thing. And so that's true for every American. It just happens that I'm a Dominican. it just happens that that's the story of this little community. This is a story of a global proportion, and that's what DNA is revealing. That's why people shouldn't be afraid of this or, or, you know, say I'm not going to take one of them DNA tests because it's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. It's going to tell you something not only that you should hear, but so much more. So it's not anything to be negative about anything. You know, it does topple some tables in the temple, as they say, but in a good way because it clears the table to really get things on it that are so much more vast and diverse and the roots of our sure. country, the roots of our families. You know, it's a, it's an amazing thing, and I encourage everyone to view it in that light, this positive, playful, forward-looking light that, you know, you may hold off taking a DNA test, but I assure you, your children will not, your grandchildren will not. Go ahead and get involved now. My own dad, my own father, at this very moment, we're waiting for his DNA test to come back, and they'll be back in a couple of weeks. So this is exciting in our family. I took it years ago. I took took several different DNA tests, but this is exciting. My dad and I are having conversations about, well, remember that story about that grandma or that grandpa, and wow, look here's here's some DNA that is possibly related to that, and you know, and and if you take these sure. tests, it links you up with hundreds of people that are rel- related to you you didn't even know. So it's a uh, you get new information, new contact. I didn't even know I was you know related to this person or that person, and you may feel um, uh, encouraged. and and maybe even step forward to do a DNA project like you guys have done in the different communities, the Red Bones, the Lumbees, the Melungeons, as community-wide testing, Mm -hmm.
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. And these are so revealing of the groups. uh, I have been astonished. I was lucky enough to do a project not only on the Red Bones but also on the Cajun people of uh, uh, southwest Louisiana, and we had about 180 samples. It wasn't a large, large study, but it was relatively eye-opening. They, um, now We've talked about those results here for the Cajuns. And, and like you said, the MOA were misclassified as Alabama Cajuns, which basically a Cajun was, you know, French, Creole, Mixed blood person, uh, as far as our area of Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana, was concerned, that's what we were. However, the Moa have since uh, reestablished their their name and changed. And what does Moa stands for? Mobile? Mobile. Yeah, Mobile, Washington counties. Those
1: two counties are kind of the epicenter of the of the Moa population. But the the Moa group are another of our kind of, you know, what long ago was called, you know, tri racial isolate groups, that long histories as a as a distinct community, but have a multiplicity of ancestral groups and yet as a as a community maintain at least some cultural affiliation as Native American. And so, you know, is a good example of that and they're pretty they're pretty active as an Indian tribe over the last many, many decades, and yet Historically they've been called a lot of different names Just like the Red Bones Just like Dominickers And, and uh, they've kind of reclaimed that that uh, Mantle for themselves That yeah we're a diverse people Yet as a tribal community We affiliate culturally With this Choctaw line of ancestry They don't deny that they have these other You know many multi-tribal Multi-racial ancestries But they're a vibrant community as a As a Choctaw community Now there are other folks who also are tall in their identification who do not in any way feel like that the moa have the right to do that or should do that, and that's the kind of important issues that we're coming up against to where you know and you've you've seen the same thing you've told me about with the the Melungeon community and some of the others to where defining what this means now this new data this new information of genetics that it's a it's a real struggle for individuals and communities, and that's that's why I thought we got to get this Cherokee Paradox book out there to begin just uh, to start a conversation. That's all this. I hope this book is, that there's a half a dozen researchers out there that in their experience and in their areas will take this same idea, this same concept, this same paradox of I see myself this way and yet here is this mountain of information that tells me it's way more complex than I maybe want it to be, but They'll take it and run with it and say, let's deconstruct this American identity. Let's deconstruct this mixed-blood, mixed-race history. Let's deconstruct this. Let's unpack it, and let's have that conversation. Not for our sake of our grandparents, who if yours was like mine, they knew who they was. I mean, they had an existence. They couldn't read or write. They they were very local people, Um, and yet they knew exactly who they were because everybody in their life was always in their life. Strangers were kind of an unknown thing in a big way. Today, sure. I know I, I know fewer people that I've known for years than strangers that I meet all day long, basically. And that's just a marker of modern life, that those tribal communities of the past where we all were isolated and we carried on our existence within the context of that, that is a thing of the past. Unless you live in, you know, uh, upper peninsula of Michigan or in Alaska or out in Arizona, there will always be well, tribal communities there of full-blood Indian people. But if you're a mainstream American, you're going to have ancestry from all over the globe, of all kind of colors. And if you don't, your kids and grandkids will. So that oh, that mm-hmm. that's our duty as as educators and as advocates is to help our our fellow community members as well as the, the 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 friend that we've just met for today, the first time, like happens at the conference. I you know half the time half the people there that's coming to something like that, and I say welcome, you know, let's educate each other. You tell me about your experience, I'll tell you about mine. Maybe we'll get a DNA test in there. Maybe we'll get some genealogy in there, you know, because th- these, yeah. these are the and tasks
0: before us. This is so important. We need not forget this. You guys are putting on, uh, the North Florida Indians is putting on a genealogical conference in a few weeks. Tell us about that yes. and when it will be. I'm extremely Okay. extremely excited about that is it,
1: it'll be happening in june but for the first time in our historical experience as a community we're scattered across several counties here in the florida panhandle and uh our largest community on the east end had the least amount of outside academic study it has a large you know kind of archive of legal court cases and uh uh, local level identification As a Indian community And then on the west end Of our territory you say here of, of a couple of hundred miles uh, Less than that really You have another group called Mount Zion That's a related group, same surnames The same origins in the Carolinas Yet there were several um, Calvin Beale, other names That will be well known to people you know That, that study these areas of mixed blood groups Calvin Beale and several others Studied the Dominickers of Holmes County and wrote papers and there's some books and stuff about them throughout the 20th century. And, uh, you know, this, this community had its own struggle as because of that, they were kind of more well known outside the area. And yet they're kind of the, the, the least known uh, since, since desegregation. And maybe, maybe those two uh, factors are connected. I We're still unpacking that as we say that community, but, Members of the families of that community over the last decade have stepped forward and said, you know, we're encouraged by what you guys on the other end are doing, Scotts Ferry, Scott Town, communities. Uh, our book, Indians of North Florida, in or 2010, you guys released, kind of really documented in depth Scott Town and Scotts Ferry. Yet, yeah, Mount Zion, we just had a small chapter to say, you know, they're also our people. They're also related. But we didn't go super in-depth on it, mainly because we had a lack of leadership and representative of those families in our our council as a community. And we didn't want to speak too much on their behalf because, you know, as you probably learned with academia and with uh, social groups, if you say anything, it'll be held against you forever. So you best know what you're talking about. Well, so today we have individuals who are are stepping forward to kind of say, uh, we want to do what you guys have done. We're encouraged and let's have a conference. Let's have a genealogy conference. Let's begin with the past and go forward Together into the future in that You know we understand though The authorities were saying they're Just another bunch of mulattos You guys have shown in the documentation In the archives Native American Ancestry and so We want to know more about that we want To you know but folks are waking up Basically after two generations of Trying to minimize That we are a distinct people Now that as those elders, sadly, as those elders who attended those segregated schools and lived with that social experience and really social stigma in our area here, that that's just a white Negro. You know, that's really how they viewed us. We we see repeatedly in the documentary evidence and the court cases and the census things where they'd say that they're just white Negroes. They're They're interesting. They're exotic. You know, and yet we didn't have the numbers as a people of the African-American community. To, to defend us or to have resources as communities, we're talking about a few hundred people that made their way for generations through the the the, the, the traps of the social Jim Crow oh, segregation system, and only had each other, only had cousins that I might have been born looking white enough that if I walked away, nobody would know I was a Dominicker. Yet I would not abandon my family. I would not abandon my community, and and. In the court cases we see they repeatedly Defended each other that when one would be Attacked in the court case Other families who may not be As you know uh, dark complected Or may not be as uh, on the Radar of the authorities as some of these People would come forward and testify in court. Oh no no my cousin John Scott that, he is not a Negro He's a Catawba Indian we see those Narratives in multiple court cases Across the 150 years of, of our Struggle with Jim Crow here You know and that's that's what this conference coming up is about, this genealogy conference. I usually start with genealogy and anything for these folks to say, understand where you come from, and then you have a good idea of where you're going. And that's that's what this is. is after 20 years, we're finally seeing that um, phenomenon where people say, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be unique. I'm proud to be unique. I'm proud to have ties to this historic experience that, that in the times past was a mark against us, Now it's a mark for us, and I say that in a larger sense because we have been where they are going, the American mainstream, the diversification of racial and cultural and ethnic identity. We've been doing that for a few centuries, and we got a lot to offer in the narrative of the American experience as mixed blood, mixed race, mixed cultural communities. And no one has any idea right now how important this is in the generations to come
0: for all ethnic all identities, you know. Absolutely. And I I think even people like uh Gary Gabehart, uh his brother and his wife, uh Julie and their little grandchild, uh, who is I believe they said Apache. He's half right of his father is Apache and he he of course he is Chickasaw, but They are Choctaw identified, actually, but uh, regardless, they are CDIB members, and he, Gabe really, Gary, Gabe Hart really struggled with this personal identity stuff because it was all a hush deal until he was a grown man, and then they all became, became aware that, hey, we're registered, you know, we, we should be claiming this identity. And so then it was going back and claiming an identity that you had never claimed to be before as your own, and it, it felt awkward. I, I can tell you that he struggled with that. Sure. It was an awkwardness. I've seen it myself. That i myself.
1: I know what you mean. I've seen it myself. It, it, <laughs> those folks, especially that have Oklahoma – experience, I'll call it, tribal roots, they, the intermarriage rates of all those tribes have really fallen off significantly, and they continue to grow, but their kind of foundational populations are eroding. And you'll find small towns across Oklahoma of Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee Nation, where there's still a, a lot of Indians in that town, and there's a lot of folks that are very Indian, And yet the vast majority of the members of the Chickasaw Nation, Choctaw Nation, Cherokee Nation, have a very small amount of Indian ancestry, you know, a very small CDIB, blood quantum. And what we're really seeing in the larger context of that is the beginnings of the end of the blood quantum system, the beginnings of real assertion of sovereignty by tribal communities that say this outdated and colonialistic approach to defining our people. We don't want it anymore. We we will find ways to define what it means to be Cherokee, what it means to be Chickasaw, without using some outdated, you know, nineteenth um, century, yeah, colonial, yeah,
0: right, yeah. It was just a miserable failure. It just and a, I mean, a, it's a family like the Gaybarts
1: are very emblematic of that uh, phenomenon yeah. in that. You see that journey, not only of rediscovery, but redefinition, that today they are a proud member of a nation, even as you understand that there's a big difference in the American Indian race and in the the Chickasaw Nation, the Choctaw Nation. Like I tell people, there are members of these tribes that have no Indian ancestry at all, yet they are part of that tribe, and the the experience of these communities is diverse, Um, just like our own, except they... Maintain that treaty relationship With the United States government In some cases, that's the only difference In some cases, is these tribal communities Like Cherokee Nation, Choctaw Nation, Chickasaw Nation That you find in Oklahoma They fought to maintain that government-to-government relationship As a nation with a treaty with the United States uh, And a group like my own or yours Where their historical experience was outside of that relationship and the protected status that it granted to, to people as a Chickasaw or a Cherokee. You, you don't find that kind of um, backers of the Red Bones or the Dominickers or anybody. Uh, they they were fighting every day tooth and claw to, to survive the, the, the social Absolutely. environment they found themselves in, you know. not that, Not just the, the Indians weren't. They were, too. It's just a different experience, you know. And it all comes from, sure. like you said, in, in, in the Bells of the Creek Nation, we talk about the removal, And when you see a family like the Gabe Hearts and their experience in this generation, generations after the removal, the echoes of that event are still echoing in the lives of those folks. Even now in a family like the Gabe Hearts, to where the removal, when they're driving through Mississippi, when they're driving through Louisiana, they're driving through passing by the mounds that their ancestors built. Meanwhile, they're in Oklahoma or Texas or wherever, you know, it's, it, it seems like these things are not connected, yet they are intimately connected. The past and the present and the future. When I saw that that little little boy there in a family like that, this is the future yeah. of this community, and and it's it's diverse, and that's a good thing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm so proud of them. And uh, I know that they've struggled, and like you said, you know, it's just been a total detachment not only for us as mixed-bloods, but also as those who would believe that they are full-blood in the nation. I mean, they've been totally, they're generationally been detached from their homelands and, you know, their home environments. And I stopped at the, we have a, a large Trail of Tears Park, commemorative park here uh, where I live, and uh, along all the road beds grew the Cherokee Rose and of course, you know, I go every year to the powwow out there, but I stopped in and I wanted to get some pictures of the statue that's there and, and this time of year is gorgeous. And while I was there there was a man with uh and a woman there who were walking off the cemetery where one of their two of their chiefs died here at Little River. And that's used it in this statue. And these group or this man and this woman were doing kind of like what I did at William Goins and Nakadoches up at the Half Moon Prairie. It was an old Spanish cemetery, and later it was a Shawnee cemetery. And then William Goins and Nacogdoches and his wife uh, were buried there. Uh, we walked them off, walked off graves and they found at the time that I was there, 58 new graves up there, unmarked graves. And I said to the lady, I said, well, I'm just here. I want to buy whatever books you have on the history of what happened here because they stopped for a while on the trail and a lot of them were sick and they, they they're, Two of their chiefs or maybe it was a chief And his son I really don't know but she Said we're walking back to this Little cabin where she where They have a small museum and She said well that really stinks That you want these books and I said Why and she said because we have nothing We have wow. nothing Written of the history Of what here yeah, Now that's this
1: bad. is that's,
0: yeah. that's pathetic That is and That's I what I'm talking about No I don't I I I see so many sites um and things uh, historical things that should be recognized and I said to the woman I said well because the Cherokee Nation you know has given to this little park uh, these these things do they is there any way you can get grant money or things to help you guys preserve and to document what happened here and she just kind of looked at me like no You know So this is sad to me You know this is why Who's responsible For documenting These homelands And these like you said We both
1: know the answer to that question We both know that it is in Our hands and really only our hands You don't want somebody Else to tell your story You don't want that because when it happens When we abdicate our own Sovereignty as communities and I'm talking well beyond the the, the, the the term Indian sovereignty or sovereignty as it's used. No, we're talking about peoplehood. Pref, uh, Professor uh, Melinda Maynor-Lowry from University of North Carolina, a Lumbee researcher and activist, peoplehood, the concept is that, that she talks about a lot of times, applies in such a big way to our communities, and, and not just us but everyone. It's in our hands. It, the government – The federal government, the state government, they're not responsible for our survival. They're not responsible for our continuing identity as a community. It's in our hands, and we have to tell that story. And lots of people are waking up to that fact, and sometimes to tell that story means reconciling with a difficult past, you know, and things. But that does not mitigate the fact – it's a hard lesson won over 30 years of activism in my case – that we have to tell it ourselves, not just, not just that you should, but that you must. Because when someone else tells your story, you're told out of that story. Your, your, your role will be minimum, if, if at all, there. And that's one of my goals, to bring to this narrative of the history of the state of Florida, the role that we played, and it's a significant role. Absolutely. These folks knew that they were a people worthy of, of their place on the state. And that's true of everyone, but not everyone, not every community that members feel that sense of responsibility to the past. to the, to the past and that's a hallmark I think of our type peoples that that that's tradition saying. and roots and history play a major
0: role absolutely and i I do have to acknowledge at this point uh, Marvin Jones who works with the Chaoke community. Um, he is a, a great advocate for them. He's always doing uh, great community services and inviting everyone and hosting dinners and get-togethers and historic. And you know, it's people like Marvin Jones and yourself and Pony and myself uh, and and people like also uh, Marco Williams who has written a new book that is. We're going to work on it this week. I hope to get it out. Here in the next week or two uh, she's, She had a book a curr- uh, Actually written She wrote a book Several years ago Called Miles Lassiter And um, it's about the Lassiter family And their community And she has written A, 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 a preceding book Or a sequel book And it's uh, more about uh, The Hilltown Which is the Hill family To Stribe. And she provides extensive research docu- and documentation on the Reconstruction era community of Hilltown. Um, that would become later on Strivey and the American Missionary Association. And you, uh, I believe it's pronounced Wary. it's spelled U-H-A-R-R-I-A. And uh, community, and so she's done extensive work on on that family, and we're going to release a book, and so many of us out here are standing up now, and because we do have a platform like Blog Talk Radio, and uh, Back in Time Talk is, and Redbone Heritage Foundation, and the Dominickers also have their own website, can you give us that website also, please?
1: Yeah, it's dominickerindians.org, like one word. And Dominiker, it's it's D-O-M-I-N-I-C-K-E-R Indians.org, like one word. And that, uh, I should probably preface it, that that is a controversial term in our community in certain ways, that here you have folks who run towards the word creek, folks that don't have a single creek line of ancestry and are truckloads of of Catawba and and stuff, you 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 find that phenomenon to where Doing. there's st- there's still a lot of uh, stigma relating to the word Dominicker, but I I in that kind of uh, growing thing, I've I've reclaimed that term and that I'm not ashamed to be a Dominicker. And now the, the the origin of the term, kind of like some of your own community, like the Red Bones mm-hmm. and Brass Ankles and all them, Dominicker chickens are what we were mm-hmm. called after. They were a black-white striped type of of chicken that were used in the in the, the chicken fighting of the time. That was a, a popular sport among all people down here in the South, but especially among our people, we were pretty good at it, and some still are. In fact, the they're, they're fighting and stuff. But that term was one sure. that they hung on us, Dominicker. Yeah. Oh, they're not. They're just white and black mixed stripe. You know that kind of thing. But sure. I've reclaimed sure. it, and, and I advocate for its use as far as uh, it's a, it's a it's a way to describe a. Uh, people like us without,
0: uh, you know, without, without uh, a clear thing. You know? We were, yeah. yeah, we were distinct groups that were identified yeah, yeah. in this uh, regard. If the Kunas can get over Kunas, I think that Red Bones can get yeah. over Red Bones. right. <laughs> That's right. what I think yeah. I mean, The have no trouble with that And I always laugh and use that And I did also want to say that I have done uh, extensive research There is a large Jewish community Who were brought here during exile from Europe uh, They were Inquisitional Jews Who were brought to Mexico City As basically as slaves They were Converso Jews But they right. have retained their Jewishness, and I would I would put out a call to any of those in that community because I believe that we have recently found some DNA ties to them through our, I mentioned the mission system, Indians that were used and, and, and or slaves, uh, that were used extensively through the Spanish and the Portuguese missions and their system here, in especially in the Gulf of Mexico, and so I, I'm extending her. I've spoken to them several times now, and I'm going to reach out further because uh, the Tejano population in Texas, the Free Sabines in Texas, we're we're all related, uh, you know, and and our struggles are similar, and so we we want to include them if they're related to us. But I believe that they are. And I'm awfully proud that they have retained their Jewishness, even though they faced, uh, I can't even imagine this. Well, the heresy courts went as far as Natchitoches, Louisiana. So, you know, that they were put under that sort of ridicule. Um, you know, the heresy courts were um, people, or, you know, the the court system says to you, "We think you think something, you know," and so we were even pre- persecuted for our own thoughts. And so, right. it's 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 taken us long a long struggle for us to come out and do like you have done and said it's okay. I I, I say I'm a Dominic or two because that identifies this certain community over here of people, and um, I'm the same way with the red bones. I feel that our closest. A cultural match is is I don't, you know, I, I really don't know because by the time my generation came along it was so convoluted and so hushed. I mean, we spoke of it in quiet family time only. We did not speak about it in the public except that my key answer when someone said, well, where are you from? <laughs> I'd say, oh, well, my dad's Native American. You know, and it was just a all right. And because I don't really believe that the uh, native or that the red bones were, even though up until World War One they were still identifying themselves on paperwork as Indians, you know, military registrations and so forth. Um, we didn't retain that, but we did retain partial tribal type connections to one another, and so. But yes, we 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 really want to reach out and say there's there's no reason to be ashamed of any of these names uh, any longer because the more shame that the, if we accept the shame of those names, then we accept oppression further, right? And um, so you you've done a great job, and um, I hope everyone will visit your website because you have a lot of great documentation up there about your. Group and about your families, And soon I am going To get together a large amount Of red bone genealogy And I'm going to Send it to you guys so that you have it To work with and maybe somebody can Plug in we know That we of course I've been through these DNA ties but the maternal Lines uh, crisscross Each other heavily between The melungeons The red bones the moa choctaw and the Cherokee of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and also the Cheraw people. We also know that in the Redbone Chronicles that was published recently, uh, and as I said earlier, you can buy a copy from Amazon.com, and it's a beautiful book. But we do need to talk about Joanne Pazula's article. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, but the, uh, Joanne Cazula wrote an article called The Carolina Tribes in Pre-Contact, where she presents explicit documentation um, that the Spaniards and the Portuguese, and they brought black African slaves with them. They brought gypsy slaves with them. Uh, these people mixed heavily, you know, into the the chair walls. And there was even the, right. the, the, the trade girls. You know, we we right. hadn't really touched on that, but the chair all these women's DNA are being found throughout the southeastern tribes, all the way up to Manitoba, uh, Canada at the Cree Crossing. And so we're a much more diverse tribally people than than possibly we've ever recognized and DNA is helping us to prove that. it is, but it it is indeed small. Of history that we don't recognize very often that that these people were traded and these women were especially traded throughout the Irish and Welsh men who would come here and become tra- Indian traders and outcasts in their right. own right from the That's white right. elitist So uh, you're talking about ancient tribal people, just that they're from North European Europe, fit right. perfectly. Into the tribal people of uh, the Americas. And so right. we are, and I think in Bells of the Creek Nation, we, you did include the map that I'm so proud of, and I know we need to add to it occasionally, but it bears repeating over and over and over again that if we could have people from each one of these known mixed blood groups Of reputed Native American ancestry And we work on the genealogy Like you guys are working on your genealogy We're going to connect all of us together It's just too many similar Even if we didn't Totally Figure it out We have so many similar surnames And I know that doesn't mean a lot to some people But in a tribal context It means a lot that's right. And and, and it's a step it's a step in a
1: process. It's not we we don't have enough time in our lives and in our day to do everything that needs to be done. But what we do is I always think of my grand my grandfather. He he was illiterate. He never had a chance to go to school, learn to read or write or anything. And I think of myself, you know, a degree-holding person writing books, researching, and then I think about my grandchildren and their grandchildren. It's a process of Reclaiming our you know our own heritage and mm-hmm. setting the stage for our future, not just our own but everyone's of, of this commonality that that we're moving more toward our ancestors were very divided they were they were tribes, they had their valley, they had their hill they they had their territory, and that's true for the last hundreds of thousands of years we're entering a new future to where it's not going to be tribes as they were a tribe will just be more of a cultural affiliation a language it's it's, you know it's a new future completely new and we've been moving towards it for a long time but it's exponential now that my my the people are intermarried in my family my grandparents my great-grandparents they're all intermarried they all have the same surnames back and forth probably like yours like a lot of them well that's really more of a thing of the past in that the diversity of future i've got you know family members and my direct close family from all around the globe now, all around the planet. And that's the future of all of us. If you're not there yet, you'll be there soon. So this kind of work that we do, the database that we're compiling, the, the, the library of works that we're putting forward for centuries to come, mm. hopefully our descendants and others will say, wow, it's an amazing thing that I have all these ancestors from these different lands and different cultures and, and and some of them we knew of, and some of them we didn't. But it allowed them to have a strength of identity as a human being, rooted in all these peoples, rather than the identity of our ancestors who they were killing each other. If we if we cast back to the past and remember, my ancestors come from many different tribes, and most of them, you know tribes in Europe, tribes in America tribes in Africa, and they were killing each other. You know, that was the times. Absolutely. The future Absolutely. is an amazing place, and we're playing a role in that, in this stepping stone of time and history, you know. I
0: believe we are, and I believe it's, it's like you said, it's, it's groundbreaking, and it will document and preserve what we know today um, for right. the future and for our future descendants and their descendants, and they can look back and say, at this time in this era, um we were this.
1: Right. And it's uh, important and beyond beyond I can't stress how important it is. My cousin Pony Hill that you know our our, our listeners may know from his work. When he yes. spent a decade going through the legal court cases of our our community over the last two hundred years, some of those court cases were in piles of paper laying on the floor at the courthouse. They yes. they had no value to to others. But in that pile of paper and just, you know, it just was nothing to them was our history of the last 200 years, last 150 years, and that's happening all over. If you're not a, a archivist, if you're not a researcher and somebody you need to, if you care about the past and stuff, is we are – it's like a uh, an emergency situation. It's like a burning house. These documents, some of them are decaying where they sit. They're turning into dust. They are being thrown away. They – this is the, the the history of of our country. Really, it's a shame to me that yeah. such imported documents as marriage record books and land titles and these kind of records are just being pure lost. Not not. I mean, if it's five hundred years old, they'll sell it on eBay for you know ten thousand dollars. But let it be a hundred years old. Oh, that's just some old document. It don't mean nothing. This is the history of your family. This is the history of your community. And you know, it, it's well, kind of it, a burning house situation. It, it,
0: it's the history of America, basically. Sure, I mean, yes. I, you know, it may not be written down in a book, but I'm like Pony, you know, 12 years old. I'm digging around. I said to the lady, I would like to find some things on my dad's family. And I mentioned what birth years and that were in Texas, early Republican Texas. And she sent me up to the Dome at the Capitol in Austin and said, opened a door and said, go for it. And it was just books upon books upon books, just stockpiled papers everywhere. Um, no air conditioning in Texas. You can imagine right, how right. that it was. And I just absolutely... You know, stayed the whole week and begged mom to stay longer. And uh, but, however, rot these things are decaying as we speak. It is imperative that we locate as much and document as much and preserve as much as we can. And I think we're doing the best we can. Um, and and hopefully others will step up and pick up the torch and keep going with that because it's so important and uh, significant to our people. And to our heritage and to our lives today. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for You're welcome. being here and all the work that you do to advocate for your community and for our communities, and to host such wonderful things as you did last weekend uh, at North Florida Indians Conference, your twentieth. I'm so proud of you and. Uh we are so appreciative of the welcome that we got there and I um my father will never forget being there with you and uh never forget meeting you guys and and, and sharing kinship between us and, and we really appreciate it. Yes. We we appreciate
1: having you. y'all here and your presence was uh a highlight of, of years for us. So thank you, Stacy.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful, and we look so forward to the next um, uh, Blog Talk Radio from Back In Time Biz, and hopefully Scott will come back and be my co-host again because we always get yes, on these beautifully long conversations, <laughs> and they're so informative. And everyone always writes me and says, "Oh, we just love your your radio show." So we're going to continue to do that. And I love you, brother. I love you too. You take care. I sure will, you too. And thank you for listening today um, and or listening to our archived version. You can visit our website at www.backintime.com or .biz, excuse me, .biz, anytime. Thank you.